Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. This week, we're continuing our conversation with Harrison Fillmore, author of Godfathers of Chicago's Chinatown, Triads, Tongs, and Street Gangs. If you missed last week's episode, make sure to check it out. And if you have a moment, be sure to leave us a quick review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps other listeners and history buffs find the show, and we sure are grateful. Okay, back to the conversation. Harrison, Jim, welcome back to Crime Capsule. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having us. Great to be back. So before we pick up where we left off, I wanted to ask you just one question about your sources. As you read Godfathers, it it is fascinating to me how many different kinds of sources you ended up working with in order to tell this particular story. I mean, you have newspapers, you have scholarly articles, you have historical accounts, uh, you have police files, you have court transcripts. I mean, you have just such a spectrum of different uh, sources. And of course, you know, sources are to historians what evidence is to, uh, you know, police investigators and to, and to prosecutors. You know, it's kind of where we get our, uh, our bread and butter. Um, I wanted to ask you, as you were really beginning to frame the early days and the origins of the Tongs in Chicago's Chinatown, what were the main sources you were drawing on in that kind of first generation, the late 1800s into the early 1900s, to tell, to be able to sort of paint that portrait? A lot of the historical references came from uh, the newspapers. Um, uh, and and uh, I will go all the way forward to, you know, the police reports you uh, reference and the, the federal uh, indictments and things. We're all in public domain, you know, um, but a lot of it's oral history, believe it or not. A lot of it is uh, stories handed down from generation to generation. People, you know, my grandfather used to talk about this. There's actually um, uh, a, a, one of the murders is referenced by being talked about um, by the granddaughter, you know, who didn't really know the, the details until she talked to her family. And there's there's a lot of that. There's a lot of um well, I had, I'd heard this from one of my great uncles, and that was through years and years of just uh, being in the city and talking and knowing the people and, uh, you know, uh, informal interviews. And that's that's all that's kind of what started this whole uh, path to documenting this colorful history is knowing about it, hearing about it. And uh, I just wanted to put it together, you know. And so, yeah, a, lot, a, a ton of the source material began as oral history and stories I had heard from uh, friends, uh, family, and um, other, you know, other uh, acquaintances. So the informal source kind of, wouldn't you say, led you to sort of looking up and seeing what the facts of that were, trying to get as much about the facts of what you, of these things you had heard about and going and trying to retrace that? Exactly. And then going back using, uh, you know, for the dates and the times and the details. But hearing the on Long versus Hip Singh was you know, stories that we'd heard for generations, you know. But yeah, the source material would come from public domain police reports, going into the old newspaper accounts, and uh, even old murder files, which uh, I think it was the University of Chicago had, uh, or University of Illinois Chicago has online, you know. And I, I think an interesting thing, too, is in, in reading some of the, if you look at some of the primary sources, both newspaper reports and interestingly, police reports at the time were written in a much less of a Jack Webb sort of a way. Yeah. Be, there's a, there a lot more glibness. There was a lot more like explaining the story in the report. You know, um, the narratives could be much more interesting, I thought. 
too. Some of the, the way that they used to write police reports, you know, I think the, it's been narrowed down to a certain kind of a science over the last 30 years that didn't exist back then. And to the researchers and the historians' uh, benefit. There's definitely been a shift, yeah, in, in that style over the years. Very much adjust the facts, ma'am, now, you know. But um, I was curious, Harrison, I mean, how reliable were the newspaper accounts of a century ago? Because, I mean, here you often had reporters from the Tribune entering this community that they did not understand, they did not speak the language, you know, there was... Uh, there were barriers, you know, that were that were put up there, and yet they were tasked with describing a murder that had taken place on a street corner, you know, after a card game or something like that. And uh, I mean, it's it, this will come as no surprise, you know, to either your readers or to our listeners that in some cases there was some pretty overt racism going on in uh, these accounts, you know. And I was just kind of curious, what, yeah, what what was your sifting process to kind of get through? that to the actual fact that you wanted to then investigate? There was certainly a great amount of sensationalism, right? Uh, that exists in, you know, jur- journalism today. Uh, so yeah, you do have to get back to, all right, what are, what are the facts? And I know we, we did bring him up last week, but Sam Moy did quite a bit to um, kind of try to explain things in his community's language and his eyes and you know to kind of say well that's what the the police report says but this is actually what really happened and you do have those accounts in uh, a couple of the newspapers the other thing you have to um kind of cross-reference is i you know i i just mentioned it that uic uh i think it was called the murder project where they were documenting every case from the 1900s uh, or the late 1800s to you know the 70s and they're just short narratives, but as long as you can cross-reference and get some, uh, you know, uh, corroboration to the story, that, that's that's kind of the the process that I would go through. So let's turn back to Sam for a minute. Uh, you write that as prominent as he had become in his role, he also acquired a challenger. I mean, he acquired someone who saw what the on Leong was doing and decided that you know he wanted a piece for himself uh, and this particular individual man named King Fu uh, accused Moy of uh, corruption he accused him of uh, extortion all the things which of course um, organized crime was famous for <laughs> uh, and yet which Fu would in some ways go on to do himself. So just describe, describe this rivalry uh, between these two men and then tell us how that grew into a rivalry between Tongs. So uh, when Fu, King Fu came, uh, came to Chicago and he was already a sort of national figure, um, it was almost like uh, who's going to be bigger? Who, who's going to take the limelight? Who's going to... who? who are the newspapers going to listen to, um, you know, and, and during the time he had this rivalry ongoing with a guy named Kearney, who was, uh, uh, actually anti-immigration, anti-Chinese, even though himself being an Irish immigrant or I'm sorry, his parents were Irish immigrants. Uh, so he had this national rivalry going as well. Uh, when the, uh, crimes, you know, involving the Hip Singh versus the An Leong and King Fu happened to be on the, 
the uh, hip sing side, I do think it had more to do with family and family connections than it did with the tongs at first. Then it just kind of exploded. And, you know, you can't really put a finger on how exactly it started, like most rivalries. And, you know, a lot of it's uh, a lot of it's myth and tradition and, um, you know, uh, legend. But so we don't know exactly how it started or what started the, uh, you know, the rivalry. But it got very bloody in the 20s around the same time as Bugs Moran and Al Capone, you know. So it's uh, you had this ride, this bloody 1920s rivalry. It, lo- it looked inevitable when we look back at it historically. It looked like it, it was definitely going to happen between those two, right? Like it, now it seems like it was inevitable. Much like Bugs Moran and Al Capone, Bugs would constantly accuse the government of protecting Al Capone. And King Fu essentially would say the same thing about Sam White. And Chicago politicians and law enforcement were on the, the side of the An Leong and Sam Moy. And again, and he, he couldn't get a fair trial himself for any of his people. You go so far as to say that in this period, I mean, you describe it as a, a war breaking out, basically. Help us to see what that looked like. You can't really put a finger on how it started. But what, what you can see is, for example, one of the powerful Moys was shot immediately there's just a barrage of retaliation and it happens all over the city uh, where they're hitting laundromats on the South side. And there's a, there's a restaurant on the West side and you know, there, so it's this, it's just this effort where it's not just two guys meeting on the street and shooting each other. It's all right, you shot one of ours. We're coming after you guys. And you see this back and forth and um, yeah, nothing short of a bloody war and much like the, uh, you know, uh, I reference it a lot, but much like the Al Capone beer wars, you know, they were going back and forth and trying to take over the city. There wasn't a whole lot of documented uh, Tommy guns, not like uh, not like the outfit. Um, definitely pistols, and uh, they were known for hatchets. That was a big one. Uh, and then there's this crazy bombing of a where they they uh, manipulated a light bulb and a light socket to. Uh, then distract one of the guys that owed him money, owed money to the Tong, one of their rivals, and they screwed in this explosive device that they invented into the light chain uh, to blow the guy up when the next time he turned the light on when they left the house. So, yeah, there was a little bit of uh, a little bit of ingenuity there, but mostly it was yeah, walking in a laundromat or the restaurant and lighting the place up, and that happened a lot. I mean, you write, I remember that scene in the book very well, because you sort of think, no, don't pull the cord, don't pull the cord, right? <laughs> and he pulls the cord. <laughs> sure did. <laughs> and, uh, and you write that, that in, in this sort of phase, we're talking now from uh, more or less the 1920s up until about the 1940s or so, um, this, this conflict, this war this, that's, that's ongoing, I mean, it involves assassinations, it's sort of raids on opium den, dens, you've got gun battles, you've got uh, turncoats, people are switching sides, you know, between the different tongs, which is really interesting, loyalties are shifting. And th- I think the thing that, that is maybe most fascinating uh, is that you actually had infiltration from the Fed. And I thought that was first of all, extremely impressive <laughs> uh, because here you do have this closed, tight-knit community, right? Um, and and yet there are a couple of agents who managed to get initiated into the Tongs. Tell us about that. Yeah, so not only were they able to... Uh, and, and opium was the um, was the target. They were, trying, they were looking at opium trafficking and they became 
such good earners, kind of like we, what we talked about last week, they became known as, you know, spreading their money around. And, you know, they, they kind of assumed they must have this own, their own network that they're selling to, that they were invited to become essentially made members of the hip sync. And yeah, the ceremony's fascinating. And it was all in open court where they recited it uh, during their witness testimony. And yeah, it was uh, unprecedented at the time, especially for that community. And where did you learn about that? What were the sources for that? Was that like agent memoirs or was that sort of closed police files? Where did, where did you learn? They were federal files. They were, um, yeah, public domain at the t- still are. Uh, but it began, it began as a, uh, as newspaper articles. And then once I started digging, digging a little deeper, it was in a, a, a retired agent's memoirs. And his attached, like the the agent's affidavits and uh, complaints, which are which in in federal court are written in a real long narrative way. Like it's a real it's a fact pled situation. So a federal complaint can, can, can uh, contains like every fact that they can that you can imagine. It's very long document and it contains like all the facts that they that they know of at the time to support uh, their cause of action. So it's much better than, like, say, a state complaint. It's, it would be very extensive and very fact-involved. I was going to ask, I was curious, what happened to these guys? I mean, when, once you're initiated, I mean, you're in, right? And if, if you break any of those 36 O's that you've sworn, you know, you're going to die in a hail of knives, right? Um, and Or be, be cut up by swords, you know, according to your own uh, pledge. And, and so I was curious, I mean, did they have to stay in for life? No, no. Since they were agents, uh, once the, the operation was done, I know they were recognized in Washington, D.C. They were awarded, you know, accolades. And as far as I know, both retired in good standing. Fascinating. It's a truly, truly fascinating chapter. So you write right around the 1940s and early 50s, there was a pretty significant shift in the public reception of and attitudes towards the tongs. And in particular, a shift driven by increasing anti-Chinese and anti-communist sentiment, right? And that, of course, had a lot to do with the revolution that was taking place in uh, mainland China at the time. Um, can, can you describe how the, how the Tongs began to adapt to what was taking place back in the homeland and try to manipulate their image or kind of reform their image in a way that would make themselves more palatable? The first thing they did was become very patriotic during World War II. Uh, there are plenty of volunteers from Chinatown. Uh, they held uh, patriotic parades through the middle of Chinatown, wearing Amer- you know, waving American flags. And essentially, um, it was the anti-Japanese sentiment that, uh, you know, you know, this is, you know, they they were the victims of a lot of uh, imperialist uh, bullying, if you will, in in Asia. So, uh, you know, the, the the Chinese were weren't exactly allies but uh in chinatown they were in chicago's chinatown they were um so the later change shift to communism in the uh you know late 40s and early 50s that's when uh the tongs came out against communism where they were quoted um i think it was gerald moy was quoted saying we don't even like those reds you know we want nothing to do with that uh when some of the rumors that came that you know they were uh, essentially recruiting for communism uh, to take over in Chinatown, 
they were adamantly opposed to it and very vocal about not liking the communism uh, in Chicago's Chinatown. And I think they were enjoying the capitalism and uh, casinos of their own, so they didn't want anything to do with it. Just to echo what Greg says, I think it was by necessity they were going to out-American the Americans, right? The idea of communism, if you look at the history of the lives of these guys, I don't think they were lying when they said they had wanted nothing to do with uh, with communism because they were the ultimate imperialists. Uh, and Chinatown was is the ultimate market state. I think you are on record as saying that now, <laughs> which is uh, you know I'm gonna, I'll let you and your attorneys deal with uh, deal with that. But no, um, so it is interesting because with this turn towards respectability in the public eye. Um, that that you chronicled during this period, there's a sort of hope that some of the old tensions and dynamics of grievance, retaliation, and violence between Tongs will see its end, right? But you write in this very compelling way that that was not, in fact, the case, and that the 1970s and the early 1980s brought about a renewed focus on violence between the Tongs that kind of shattered that fragile peace that had been achieved. So what what happened here? It followed a, a lot of the crime trends of the rest of the nation. The 70s started seeing, uh, you know, more organization, you know, more... Uh, kind of these high stake robbery kind of things, you know, all the way up to the to the eighties and nineties where street gangs were essentially being formed, you know, where we were mimicking Los Angeles and even here, here at home, the gangster disciples and the vice lords where suddenly these Asian gangs were popping up and some short lived, some uh, lasted a little longer. But so I think it really followed national crime trends and it wasn't until, um, we had an import from New York City that caused Nicky Louie, that caused all the, really brought the hip singing on along, who had kind of been peaceful. You know, there had been rivalries here and there, and no great acts of violence until Nicky Louie came into the city. And that kind of sparked off what would essentially be the end for, uh, uh, you know, large-scale Chinese organized crime in Chicago's Chinatown. And tell us about him. I mean, what, what was his story, and how did, how did he arrive in Chinatown? So he was a uh, street thug, became one of the ghost shadows in New York City, and it was originally very useful to the Yan Leong out in New York City, where he was kind of an enforcer. And if they needed something done with uh, the Hip Sings or the other smaller street gangs, he was pointed in that direction. Well, he wasn't satisfied with just being the leader of this small street gang. He wanted to move up the ranks further, and that's when the Yan Leong decided that they'd had enough of him. He ran afoul of uh, Fast Eddie, this Eddie Chan from uh, Hong Kong, disgraced policeman who brought millions of dollars with him in corruption money. And again, we kind of mentioned it last week, but because he was an earner, because he made so much money, he rose very quickly through the ranks of the Anli On. Once uh, Nicky Louie ran afoul of Eddie Chan, and that rivalry began in New York City, Nicky Louie came to Chicago kind of looking for a, a plan B. And yeah, it was the influence and the, the threat of New York infiltration, I think, that really sparked the violence as much as anything. Yeah, because they were already established here in Chicago. So for Nicky Louie to come and start kicking over to cans and trying to start his own thing 
uh, was was frowned upon, except that he started gaining because he was so violent and so, uh, you know, uh, so outrageous. He started gaining some uh, some reputation and guys started to follow him. So guys started getting in line and he started he had some guys uh, loyal to him who were originally you know, loyal to either hip sing and even some old ghost shadows from Chicago. Like, like Sean Connery, he was willing to do what the other guy wasn't, right? Yeah. You know? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> it, all, it, all, it all goes back to Sean Connery at the end of the day. Um, no, no there's this, there is this kind of shift uh, at this moment, and I'm not going to spoil for our listeners kind of what, um, what happened here with some of the most brazen incidents in the 70s and 80s, you know, that sort of certain robberies, which just kind of took everybody by surprise, you know, incredibly dramatic. And we'll, we'll let our listeners become readers uh, to learn more about that, because it, it really is extraordinary, some of the, the feats that these tongs pulled off against one another. It kind of blows your mind to think about it today. Um, but what you begin to see is a shift into more courtroom drama, you know, after the sort of the drama of the raids and the the murders and the robberies, uh, the action begins to change stage. And so, uh, different leaders of different tongs are brought in on charges, and uh, sometimes these charges stick, and sometimes they don't. But you know, in the history of col- colorful characters that we've been talking about. There's one guy who stands out here as perhaps one of the most colorful characters of the entire book, and that is Robert Cooley. And, you know, I you almost want someone to make a movie about Robert Cooley, but then it would be glorifying kind of the way that he managed to <laughs> <laughs> evade justice or, or subvert justice. Uh, yeah. just, just help us to see how, you know, Robert really became a central figure in the 80s as the Tongs came under investigation. And he was inside, sure he was did. outside, he was, he, he was kind of everywhere. And it was, it was not, um, not a great dynamic. That was almost accidental, too. I mean, he, had, he walked in cold to the FBI office uh, to talk about uh, the outfit, you know, and this Chinatown stuff was kind of happened peripherally. And uh, at the time, after, you know, a couple of not guilty verdicts and they figured out that this was, you know, ongoing corruption in the court system, that's when they went back to Cooley and said, what about this Chinatown stuff? And he ended up, you know, kind of cracking it wide open again with several other informants and other people and other cooperators. But he was kind of central to showing San Leong is a large scale national outfit, a criminal enterprise. But he gets bought. He basically gets seduced by the amount of money that is flowing through these organizations, and he, he, as an attorney trying to represent him, he get he ends up on the take, right? And he ends up oh, having yeah. to throw throw different trials in different directions. Right. He's bought before he turns into the good guy. You know, he's uh, he's part of the problem until he decides not to be. But uh, it's still it's interesting and and how he how he almost falls into these kind of Chinatown cases. And then after his first successful not guilty through corruption begins, he's kind of their uh, go-to guy all over the nation. And he ends up in Houston. He ends up doing a couple other cases for him too. You can't, you can't tell the story of organized crime, any aspect of it in Chicago without Robert Cooley's name. If it's paying off judges, if it's 
uh, getting mob hitmen off, if it's, you know, fixing cases for the tongs. Um, and the fact that we continue to say his name is probably anything Robert Cooley suffered. His reward is us. The fact that we're even mentioning his name right now, you know, still talking about him. Yeah. Still talking about him. I love how casual you are, Jim. It just sort of flows so fluidly off the tongue that, you know, just paying off judges is just something that we do. It's like going and picking up the laundry, you know. It's, just, it's a Chicago thing. What can you say? Well, I mean, the, the, the amount of people that went to prison in the, in the 80s because of a, that widespread corruption and, uh, you know, documented, it's documented that two murders were, were thrown by payoffs. So and that's just that we know of. Uh, during that period makes for uh, an anything goes kind of a, a, a environment, right? I mean, anything did go if you could pay for it. So what, so what happened to Cooley? What did happen? Is, it, is Robert Cooley alive? Do you know? I believe he is. Yeah, he's done. He still does interviews every so often. And yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure he's got a script out there somewhere <laughs> trying to get a movie yeah, made, you know? Sure. <laughs> oh, yeah. I don't, sure. I don't know that for a fact, but no. He was, after he testified, um, he was put in Witsack for a, a short amount of time. And I, I think he just, he didn't like that life. Um, but I, yeah, I believe he's still alive. So let's let's take a look just before we wrap up here um, at kind of where things stand today. I mean, with, with the advent of these trials, eventually some of the leaders were charged. Some of the charges did stick you began to see the kind of gradual erosion of the power bases among the different tongs um, in the in the Chinatown community. But one of the things that you write about, which is kind of interesting, is that even as you know the Fed began to crack down on uh, the opium dens and the the drug trade and uh, extortion and so forth. There was this sort of counter movement, which had nothing to do with federal criminal prosecution. It had everything to do with legalization of certain things that the Tongs had just profited on because they were illegal, like different kinds of you know, casino activity. And so there was this this kind of tension in the '90s where where they couldn't make bad money anymore because folks could just go and and you know play the tables for without uh you know fear of oversight that sort of thing you you had this pincer attack almost on the power structure of the tongs so how long did it take for their influence really truly to wane yeah so i don't i i don't think their influence is completely gone i'm sure they're still around, you know, I, I, they still own buildings, you know, the Hipsing still has a building on the north side and uh, the Anlong still has an association building, you know, in the uh, Chinatown proper. So they're still around, but I think they learned a lot, uh, much like the outfit did in the uh, 80s and 90s, that it wasn't worth it being the head of anything. Nobody wanted to be the, the godfather. Nobody wanted to be that kingpin anymore, you know. Uh, and then, yeah, with the uh, legalization of you know, when, when the casino started opening and they first started opening, you know, out of state and they ran charter buses right in the heart of Chinatown. And so you could jump on a bus for eight bucks and, you know, gamble legally with, you know, little to no recourse. And um, it just made it easier, you know, and, and uh, it just, you know, it was a huge shift in uh, the illicit funds that they could make. Having said that, they're still booked. There's still illegal gambling. There's still casinos there, but it's just just nothing like it was, you know, prior to the legalization in Illinois. 
Jim, is there any kind of, from your perspective, you know, in the court system, I mean, do you find that um, indictments or charges, you know, today against members of these associations or against the associations themselves, I mean, have those just completely fizzled out as well? Or do you still get little kind of ripple effects based on, you know, low level stuff uh, kind of percolating up every now and then? So I see a lot of, um, I don't know if, if Greg has seen any of this or whatever, but a lot of product moves through Chinatown still. A lot, a lot of money and a lot of product and specifically cannabis. I mean, acres and acres and acres of illegal cannabis, of black market. Now, we, I guess I would call it now that cannabis is technically legal, but an incredible amount of black market cannabis and the money attached to it runs through Chinatown and specific guys that live there that are Chinese nationals. Um, and uh, I don't know if that's Tong related or not, but it's certainly a convenient um, it's a, become a very convenient conduit to move through these people in Chinatown. The way that they operate is very low key and it's very um, under the radar, you know. And so I think it's become a very convenient conduit because um, you can run into houses in, in Chinatown with certain individuals with, I mean, just hundreds of pounds, you know, and that's fairly regularly. Then the other the other money maker is the uh, the off market or the the knockoff brand. Um, merchandise you know that's huge oh, yeah. right now and um you know that's that's filtering into different neighborhoods but there's just no one entity providing the protection of those things anymore you know i, I think there's going to be a hierarchy of whoever's running the cannabis or whoever's you know running this or that there's there's still little crews but there's nothing like the old on leong covering the entire Chinatown neighborhood like there was. I, yeah, I agree. I agree with that, what I've seen. Yeah, I have not seen these piece, people to be part of any larger organization like that or beholden to anybody in that way. Uh, essentially moving into something much more decentralized than it was, you know, in the heyday, which was highly centralized and highly organized and structured. Yeah. Uh, I was struck by uh, a comment that you made near to the end of your book where you argued that even the, the, the product... Uh, the, the narcotics, you know, have shifted dramatically over the years to reflect kind of current tastes and trends and what people are looking for. So, you know, you mentioned weed, of course, uh, Jim, but then there's also ecstasy, which seems to be uh, very hot right now in that particular community. I think it's going to be fascinating to see how as cannabis is increasingly legalized, just like gambling was, you know, uh, in different parts of the country and those those laws begin to change state by state. What, what will happen when cannabis becomes legal in Illinois, right? And will you begin to see an, yet another evolution in the black market trade, uh, which, which in some form still exists in this neighborhood? That's a really open question, and I would love to know what you guys you know, think might happen. Well, it's, what's already happening, because uh, you, know, you can't purchase it legally here, you can still get it cheaper on the street, and sometimes you can get better stuff, you know? It's almost like you can buy liquor in uh, Tennessee, but the moonshine's pretty damn good, you know? So, yeah, I think that's what we're kind of seeing. <laughs> what, what I think I've seen is um, the the legal market for cannabis has driven the illegal market for cannabis to heights that it had never been before. Like the black market cannabis trade in a place like Chicago has never been so great as it is now. And that is driven, I believe, by the legal market for cannabis that we now have in a place like Chicago. 
Uh, I've never seen so much cannabis on the street as is illegal cannabis on the street now as it is when it was completely illegal and the amount of importation from places that who's been legally longer, like California and Denver, so much product comes in from there and it and hits the streets now because it's it's uh, they've been involved longer. It's cheaper and better than what what they and sell. You can here. avoid the taxes. And you can avoid yeah. the tax. It's like unstamped cigarettes yeah. now. Very similar. Right. Right. Well, this is a fascinating account. I mean, I, I appreciate the insights that both of y'all bring to bear on what is both an ancient uh, community and also a very, very modern community in the way that it negotiates legality and illegality. Um, It's truly compelling. Your description of this particular underworld in American society is incredibly detailed. You have the gambling dens, you have the hit jobs, you have these sort of rituals, the secret number codes. It all comes... It feels when you read it, it's sort of like ripped straight out of, you know, the sort of Hollywood celluloid. But in fact, it is all (laughs) true. You know, every bit of it was in fact true. And Hollywood is drawing on this stuff, you know, to tell its its stories. So thank you guys so much for joining us uh, today and helping peel back the curtain a little bit, pull back the curtain to, you know, to see what's going on. Tell me, what is uh, next for you, Harrison, as far as research projects or writing projects? Do you have another book which is kind of on the desk right now, or are you just letting this one do its thing and riding the wave? Uh, actually, Jim and I, well, he, he's running lead on it, but we got something in the works, more of a fictional account, but uh, leaning heavily on the organized crime stuff and kind of about the court system and, um, a little bit of the corruption and the ethnic uh, outfit organ and criminal enterprises in the city. It's the first draft of a novel that I wrote this year called 26th Street Blues, which 26th Street is the criminal courthouse in Chicago, the main criminal courthouse. So I just finished the first draft of it. And so I'm working on a second draft and trying to get, you know, doing the whole publishing game now and agent game and, and so forth. And so that's why talking about, I, I said it in 1979 Chicago because of what we talked about just previously in this podcast about what a open market for justice it was at that time. And so it's great to write a a fictionalized account in an environment where anything goes. We can't say based on a true story, but we can say inspired by, right? Right. In an environment that was true. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Uh, It certainly sounds like anything goes was in fact the paradigm. You know, if you, uh, if you have the money, honey, I've got the time. (laughs) That's right. Well, Harrison, how can folks find your books now? What is the best place for them to get a hold of this one and anything else that you've worked on? It's all available through Arcadia Press or History Press, Arcadia Publishing, but I also have my own website, harrisonfilmort.com. And uh, Jim, any of your own works that are out there that folks can track down? Yeah, um, the film, it's a feature film that uh, debuted at the Dances with Films Festival in LA, and that can be found on YouTube now at Ghost Rider 2021. There's a lot of Ghost Riders out there, but this is Ghost Rider Perens 2021. And uh, it's a full-length feature. We're very proud of it. Uh, I'm on Jim Lynch Writer on Instagram. Uh, hopefully when the uh, novel gets published, it'll be available. Uh, the links will be available on that. Yeah, well, best of luck to you guys uh, for all your forthcoming projects. And thank you again so much for joining us. This has been a true pleasure. We will look forward to having you back on soon. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Our guest has been Harrison Fillmore 
author of Godfathers of Chicago's Chinatown, Triads, Tongs, and Street Gangs, published in May by the History Press. To order a copy, visit ArcadiaPublishing.com or your local independent bookstore. We'll be back soon with more great interviews with today's top crime historians. See you then, and thanks. Thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael DeLoya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and a signature title of the Killer Podcasts Network. You can find Crime Capsule wherever you listen to podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcasts.com. Are you tired of seeing your teen or young adult struggle on a path that clearly isn't the right fit? Is your teenager confused about which direction to take after high school? The future of work is changing rapidly, and our kids need to know all of the options available after high school so they're empowered to make the choice that is best for them. In each episode, we explore the latest trends that are shaping the opportunities of today and tomorrow. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell, and this is the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.